Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. It is me, Cindy Howes, the host of this podcast. Thanks for joining us. Before we get into rising Appalachia, let's talk about you and us. The best way to stay in touch with Basic Folk, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. That's the best way. You can also follow us on social media. We're active on Instagram, especially, and Facebook at Basic Folk Pod. You can also make a contribution. We're a listener-supported podcast. You can give $5 a month at our store, and you can get a Basic Folk beanie that is handmade by my mom, has a little Basic Folk tag on it. We're heading into the fall season, so maybe, you know, check it out. Basicfolk.com, click on the shop. Okay, let's get into it. Sisters Leah Song and Chloe Smith grew up in urban Atlanta. They also lived in New Orleans and outside of Asheville. The pair are deeply rooted in their southern identity, as evidenced in their band Rising Appalachia. Although their parents are not professional musicians, music was a constant part of the family. Their parents were dedicated students of early Appalachian music. The sisters played music every day, were classically trained, attended fiddle camps and music festivals, among other musical activities. The sisters developed their own taste in Atlanta's 90s rap underground scene, and there was a time when the two didn't want anything to do with their parents' music. However, eventually, they came back to it and decided to pursue Appalachian music thanks to some time spent away living in Mexico. Aside from music, activism and purpose remain very important to rising Appalachia. Leah's idea for the slow music movement came out of the desire to sustain the troubadour lifestyle over participating in a traditional touring musician industrial complex. While touring, the band requests local food in their rider, invite tabling from nonprofits, and work to create relationships with the local community. They also will seek out alternative methods of transportation, trains, or smaller vehicles that use non-fossil fuels. Rising Appalachia has been known to do hub shows where they stay for a few days and create relationships with the community. This past July, they hosted Catalyst, their first annual music, art, and education festival in Asheville. Leah and I dug into how being musicians helped them create a space where artists felt welcome and taken care of. We also talk about Chloe's new baby and how touring might look different this fall. Check them out and their latest album, Live at Preservation Hall. We're going to hear a song from that release, Stand Like an Oak. And then we'll get to our conversation with Leah Song of Rising Appalachia. Push 'em up, push 'em up. 
Leah, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me and subsequently us. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I am a northerner and I'm going to say the name of your band incorrectly. I'm pretty sure at some point in this interview, but <laughs> Rising Appalachia. Well, you're not wrong, but that is the northern way to pronounce it. Oh, wait. So how do you pronounce Here it? Here in the south, we, we pronounce it Appalachia. Appalachia. And my godmother always used to say the way to remember is to just think of throwing an Appalachia. Okay, I'll never forget it now. Exactly. <laughs> so you and your sister, Chloe, who's four years younger than you, grew up in the south in urban Atlanta, and you've lived there in New Orleans and outside of Asheville. Um, you are deeply rooted in your identity as Southerners. Can we start by hearing from you, like in good times and bad, what it means to be from the South? Totally. Yep. We spend so much time kind of ruminating and thinking on that question because uh, we, you, you nailed it. You know, we consider ourselves very Southern in, in a sort of a trifecta of the South. So we understand three very different regions of deep, deep Southern identity. And, and I think that having that kind of trinity of, of identity has, has been very nurturing and, and very vital for us. Um, the, the urban South that we grew up in was a concrete jungle in many ways, but full of very rich Georgia-based culture, music, you know, thunderstorms and crickets and, and everything from the blues to underground hip hop to the incredible fiddle and banjo music that was coming out of our, our family home. And then we, we spent a lot of time in Southern Appalachia as, as children. Our mother is a, is a traditional Appalachian folk fiddler. Our, our parents played in a contra dance band. Our godmother, who I mentioned already, you know, is an incredible fiddler and her and our godfather were an incredible Zydeco duo. So there was like this rich kind of cultural identity as kids straddling the urban and the rural south and then we moved down to New Orleans and spent about seven years down there and and really I think kind of came to understand our purpose and our duty in a way as musicians through New Orleans through the New Orleans reverence of music uh, and we we came down as guests and we came down to to really support the rebuilding that was going on post Katrina and then found in that space just this incredible reverence of folk music and reverence of music period, like nowhere, I think, on planet Earth, and really began to get our footing, you know, as as folk musicians, as, as sisters that were coming through a lineage and a family tradition of music, which is something that is, is taken really seriously in Louisiana. And we started busking down there a lot. We would bike to the French Quarter and and sit around with our with our instruments and try old traditional songs, try sort of folk renditions of of old ballads and test out our own songwriting and and just get a hold of musicianship down there. And and I think through that trifecta, through that process of three southern identities, it's it really it locked in. It made a lot of sense for us. I think we always have felt a little bit outside like outsiders when we're in entirely urban spaces and also outsiders when we're in entirely rural spaces. But I think understanding kind of the pulse of all of those personalities of the South has given us a lot of, of ballast and a lot of pride. And, you know, we've always talked about Southern identity as something that we want to be able to, to uplift the really positive and really, and really, really culturally rich parts because it's plagued with incredibly hard and, and harsh stereotypes, some of them very well-deserved, obviously. But there's uh, a, also a rich cultural underbelly of kind of radical change makers and fantastically laid-back, brilliant artists that have come kind of pulsing out of the, the slow, hot, sweaty you know, complicated South. And yeah. I think we're, we're always trying to be the storytellers of the parts of Southern identity that aren't told as much. Mm. Cool. 
Your parents are not professional musicians, but it was a constant part of your family as they were like dedicated students of early Appalachian mu- music. How we do with that pronunciation? Yeah, yeah, you did it. Okay, nice. Appalachian music. <laughs> <laughs> the music scene in your family involved playing music every day. You and your sister had classical and jazz training, fiddle camps, music festivals, hoot nannies at your house, a bit of ethnomusicology from your mom's taping musicians <laughs> to learn songs. Where did your parents' devotion to music come from? Like, what's been the history of music in their lives? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, our ma- our mother would would scoff at us for, for saying musicology, but really, I mean, absolutely, she has been kind of a, a front porch musicologist our whole lives, and she just got deeply, deeply obsessed and immersed in the fiddle traditions when we were little kids. We trained and studied a little bit of music, but to be totally honest, we were we were kind of like the rug rat kids that got hauled around behind our parents' passion for a lot of these traditions. And, you know, we didn't think any differently of it as 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 kids. We didn't know we didn't know that that was any different, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and as we grew up, we were like, oh, how fascinating to have been raised with such a rich, you know, both of our parents were students of the music. And so we were raised watching them learn. And mm-hmm. our, our mom, you know, our mom was a, she was playing in like a jazz piano ensemble and she was playing the hammer dulcimer for a while. And she was just kind of doing hobby music when, when we were little, when I was born. I found out recently I was conceived on a small tour that she was on. I was like, well, that's appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then I think when she got to Georgia and, and, you know, really started realizing that her identity was going to be tied into, to the South, you know, she's from Virginia, but she moved down to Georgia. She wanted to, to understand more of the traditions of the region. And, and I think her kind of inner historian, got in there and she picked up the fiddle, I think when I was about three years old and I don't, she, she still plays five, six, seven hours a day sometimes. Um, and she picked it up when we were little and she just wanted to know everything about Appalachian music she could possibly find out. And the story is pretty fun. When we were, when we were young, her first love was, was the Irish fiddle. And we went over to Ireland and she, I have a memory of her. She always had a little tape recorder and we would go into the pubs in Ireland where everyone is welcome. You know, the pubs are the community centers of Ireland. And she would record all these Irish fiddlers. And and one day one of these fiddlers asked us where we were from. And she said, oh, I'm I'm from Georgia. Just almost brushed it off. And this this old man said, oh, you know, the most beautiful music comes from, from Georgia you know, in his thick, grovelly Irish accent. And and I think that really marked for her uh, a real different understanding of, of her of her home, of place. And she did. She she took us back to to Atlanta, to the house we were born and raised in, and she proceeded to become obsessed with Appalachian folk music and she would. She started a couple of bands. They would practice in our living room many days a week on all the old contradance tunes, and then she would kind of haul us and and our dad to every Southern Appalachian folk music festival that she could find, and we would camp out. And you know, she just she had a she had a day job that she didn't love that much, and so I think she she found so much pleasure in devoting her free time into this this kind of cultural uh, revival in a way. Mm. What impact has her drive to learn had on you and the way that you learn music or the way that you learn anything? Yeah. Yeah, Chloe and I are always laughing, you know, because we have this big band and it's, you know, many albums under our belt and lots of stages and and lots of success in the grand scheme of of a working musician. Um, But our mother can play circles around both of us (laughs) (laughs) and she will always be able to play circles around both of us. And her commitment to the craft is just it will be a goal for us forever. We have 
we have mastered a, a presence of stage, you know, and an ability to read a crowd or read a room. And, and I think we put together a real special craft with our music, but she is, you know, always going to be a role model for us in, in how she's, she is, just could care less about performing. You know, she's, hmm. she wants to know how many Boeing styles there are between Kentucky and Georgia and Alabama for this one fiddle tune. She wants to know every piece of the technique, you know, and so we will, we will always bow down to her dedication <laughs> and she's always allowed to tell us if the t you know the d tune is slightly out of key or if we've gotten something wrong in the b part she she gets uh first she's like the first listener on any of our albums to kind of wow make cool. sure it's make sure it's tight so your mom had a day job and it seems like your dad was the primary t caretaker for you growing yeah, up yep yeah. sometimes we send a um, uh, happy mother's day cards to our dad also. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunately still pretty rare to have a man be the one who stays home and raises the children. Yeah. What did that look like for your family? And how did how did you feel about it then? How do you feel about it now? I mean, I think we were really, we really lucked out on our family unit. You know, it wasn't perfect by any means. There was all kinds of complications to our home life, like any family, but it was really, really loving and creatively uh, intact. And I think our dad, our dad is a very brilliant folk artist. And had he had it his way, he would have really liked to have been a professor of art and wanted to be and tried to be uh, for many years. And, and later on in life did get a, a stint as a professor after we had graduated, but he wasn't able to find that work. And so my mom had to hold the job and our father became our primary caretaker at home. And it was real special. You know, I look back at it and I'm like, oh, I feel like we're very lucky that he wasn't able to be career driven, even though he may have wanted to be. We, we really benefited from it, Chloe and I, because we had this fantastically engaged father who was an, a, a wonderfully imaginative, quirky, creative man and poured all of the energy that he that he may have wanted to put into, you know, an art job straight into his daughters. He just poured all of it into us. We had a very elaborate costume making seasons around Halloween where we could build anything and he would help us, you know, he had a master's degree in sculpture. So we could build, we won every Halloween costume in our costume contest forever because <laughs> we had a master's degree sculptor in our house building us dragons and eyeballs and all sorts of things. And, you know, and, uh, and he was able to kind of be our coach on the soccer field and he would come in and, and help at this, at the public school we went to, he would walk us to school every day. So, you know, he, he has been to this day still such an engaged father figure. And I do think that that's sadly so rare and, and mm. we benefited so much from having kind of like the matriarch that was working and, and, and like scholastic and studying all this. And then our, our brilliant quirky father who was like making beans and rice and trying to figure out how to cut our hair. And, you know, <laughs> it, it worked really well for us. I'm, I'm sure that my parents would both have totally different perspectives to offer you, <laughs> but I think <laughs> Chloe and I feel like our, our upbringing was real special and really really creatively intact and you know they still live in the same home that we were born and raised in so it's full of all of the my father has the studio downstairs all of the art and paintings and sculptures that he makes and our mother has the music studio upstairs and we just love to be there it's, it's like mm. being in the nest of all their creativity and kind of returning to all these things that really shaped us before we knew what we were doing. <laughs> Your mom still plays, you said, five to seven hours a day. Um, yeah, she's obsessed. When, <laughs> <laughs> when you and Chloe come to visit when 
all four of you are together, where is music now? Yeah, totally. We have a lot of um, family traditions still where we're all we're all still intact and we all show up with boxes of art supplies and, and, and bags of instruments. And we know that if we're all going to hang out for us, you know, we do probably four or five times a year. We just pick a location and we and we all pile in and we do all of these things. We work on art together and then we work on music together and you know, sometimes we'll bring lyrics and work on three-part harmonies with our mom or we'll bring all the fiddle and, and banjo and guitar things and see if she can help us learn some more tunes. I mean, she's she's really helped bring a lot of the tunes to us. Um, and I'd say it's like 50-50. We'll do music for half the time and we'll do art for half the time and then we'll like bake pies. It's, it's rather... <laughs> it's rather uh, Brady Bunchy sometimes over there, but kind of like Brady Bunch meets Mad Max. We get very weird. Uh, oh, great. That's what we do when we get together. <laughs> Like most any kid, you rebelled against your parents' music for a time. So you and Chloe both developed your own taste and really got into Atlanta's 90s rap underground. Definitely. You didn't want anything to do with your mom and dad's music and were kind of embarrassed by it. Definitely. Um, Eventually, you both came back to it and decided to pursue Appalachian music. How do you think that like rebellion, embarrassed era of your lives has impacted the way you feel about the musicians that you are? Yeah, I mean, well, for starters, I think we were incredibly impacted and in love with the underground hip hop culture. And I would say still to this day, that stands as one of our contemporary folk traditions. And I know that there's always a lot of debates around that, but you know, the front porch personality of the rhymes and the storytelling of good underground hip hop and and even good commercial hip hop, which is very different than what I think is popularized as like gangster rap, which is arguably, you know, can be kind of detrimental. But the, the lyricism and the underground culture of of hip hop is potent storytelling. And we don't all agree about that. Our mother does not agree with us. But mm. for us, it's been a, a huge impact as part of our lives. The the, the humor, the storytelling, the rhythm, uh, that, that sense that you can actually make music out of a, a set of spoons and some buckets and your voice, and that that is also an instrumentation. You know, that is... Uh, a tradition that comes out of the hip-hop culture and that comes out of the South um, that is powerfully similar to old Appalachian folk music. It's the poor music, it's the front porch music, it's the music of the oppressed, it's the music of that has nothing to do with being commercialized, that has to do with telling stories and, and, and making sure memories are held. So I give a huge shout-out to hip-hop culture. Um, and the impact that it's made on music traditions, uh, I think it's a, a radically, uh, radically brilliant modern storytelling. And so I think that that, that rebellion and that kind of tension between our parents' traditions and what we were growing up immersed in as young people in, in Atlanta, in the public school system, amongst our peers and our, and our community members, it, it lives very much also in our music. And we tend to, to lean back a little on the tunes. We tend to put a lot of, of real simple, kind of hooky, low-end bass behind a banjo, which is definitely not traditional, you know, that's a merging of, of, of worlds. And, you know, sometimes we, sometimes we catch some, some slack for that on every side. People love tradition to be exactly as it is, or they want, you know, fusion to be a real particular way, but it's just naturally what we hear. We, we didn't, we didn't, choose one path or the other we really grew up immersed in two 
totally different musical traditions, one through our parents and one through our peers. And they were both massively impactful to our, to our sense of rhythm, to our sense of lyricism, uh, to our sense of style, you know? And, and so I think, I think it was a real interesting thing to kind of reclaim the traditions that are in our lineage and also really pay homage to the contemporary traditions that were in our community and in our culture, uh, on our modern culture. And I, I, mm. I pay a big, big reverence to, to what has come out of the urban South as well. Both of you traveled for a bit, including, um, traveling to Mexico specifically with a banjo, um, you had been immersed in community previously in Mexico, but Chloe joined you for that trip where you first brought the banjo. And you said, it's funny because I had to leave to realize I had a culture. And at first, um, Chloe thought you were crazy to bring this terrible instrument that you were trying to escape. But you said it kept calling me back, teaching me and leading me to new places in music. It was so cool to hear about how your mom kind of experienced this in Ireland where mm. she realized that she had culture back home. Um, and then it kind of seems like the same thing happened to you. Um, but why do you think Appalachian music, Appalachian there music you go, you allowed <laughs> you to connect so deeply to new places? How did that realization change your relationship to it? Yeah. Yeah, that was a huge part of my life. Um, you know, I think of the whole thing in chapters and I I left my crazy, magical, peculiar family home that we've been talking about here when I was 18 in Georgia. And I did. I, I moved to Latin America. I wanted to, I moved to Southern Mexico to a beautiful international community in San Cristobal de las Casas, which is a small town in the highlands of Southern Mexico that was very immersed in, in activism and art um, and music, not so dissimilar to New Orleans in the sense that art was really being used uh, as a piece of the revolution of the place. And I went as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, 18-year-old girl. I had no idea how to count to 10 in Spanish. I didn't know anything about the rest of the world, you know? All I knew was my my little world of, of Atlanta, which is a big world in itself, but... Uh, and everyone, as I, I began to learn Spanish, I spent about a year living there. Chloe didn't come there. She came and visited me, and we began to travel when she was a little bit older. But as I began to learn Spanish, you know, all of the local Mexican and, and traveling community wanted to know, oh, where are you from? Oh, you're from the United States. You know, the stereotypes are instantly Hollywood, California, Los Angeles. That's it. You know, nobody had any broader idea and politics. No one had any broader idea of of some of the nuances of all these different American cultures that exist in North America. And, and so I, I did, I started just like craving something that I, that I could bring with me that would give me a way to tell a story, way to kind of communicate about some of the parts of my upbringing that were really similar to folkloric culture around the world, to, to, to the tribal cultures that you see in, in Central America and, and very different than what you see in Hollywood, you know? And, and so I, I, I went back and forth a few times in that year and I did, I came back with a banjo. No one has ever seen a banjo, you know? And so it was this immediate talking piece where people from, I would sit in the town square and people, I couldn't really play very well. You know, I was in the early stages of playing, learning claw hammer, which is pretty clunky and awkward. Um, but I was learning down there. I had some basic lessons and from my mother and a good friend. And I would just sit in the town square and play and everyone would come up. Kids would come up, old people would come up and they would ask me what this is, where did it come from? You know, and it became a talking piece. It helped me learn the language because I had to understand how to explain things in Spanish. 
and it gave me a sense of place. It gave me a sense of like, oh, I'm not just here as a foreigner uh, to to kind of study and bear witness to this culture that's not mine. I'm also here as a, you know, as my own troubadour and I have a piece of culture that I want to travel with, that I want to talk about, that I want to share where I can kind of bring parts of, of my story here and, and it can be an exchange, which which felt so valuable to me at that chapter. And, and, and still to this day, it felt so valuable to say, oh, I, I want to be able to come to a place with an offering instead of just coming to be extracting. Mm. And that, that really was, I think, the beginning of my understanding of wanting music to be this tool of connection and communication and community uh, and not, not necessarily being interested in performance yet, you know, but, but understanding like, oh, this gives me a way to talk about where I come from and a way to, to travel uh, and not just be a spectator. And, and then Chloe, I, I stayed in Latin America for about four years and, and Chloe came when she graduated from high school, which was some years later. And that is, you do have the, the shape of the story, right? You know, she came, she came down and then she, she started picking up little chops on the banjo. And then we started working on some two-part harmony songs that we could sing at farmer's markets when we were in Latin America and, and then traveling again after that. And then she brought the fiddle and we started these awful, rickety, wonderful renditions of old songs we learned from our mom. No one had ever heard fiddle and banjo. So it was just like this really quirky, ripe place to be trying these things out and and kind of getting our handle on a, on a folk music that no one had heard of. And we just felt like, okay, this is a little bit of our duty. We want to be able to tell these stories and we want to carry these songs. So we've got to learn them. You've been performing together with your sister for your whole life. Um, you are very close. We are very and close. There was a time where Chloe stopped traveling independently of you because you'd spent too much time apart. I read that somewhere. Yeah, very close. Um, for you, how would you define your relationship with the other? And what is it like to make music with your sister versus others? It's awesome. When we finish this interview, I'm driving to her house. I don't think we go 48 hours without seeing each other ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we're, we have been best friends forever since we were little. We have just enough difference in our personalities and just enough difference in our age that we've almost never been competitive, which I think we're both real grateful for. We're, we just operate in really different ways and we complement each other very well. And I feel like the primary magic of Rising Appalachia is that we're sisters and, and one of us will carry the torch when the other one of us is tired or one of us will have the inspiration when the other one of us is, is not, not clear. And that's, and that's sort of carried this big, billowing project for years and years and it it feels like when we when we get together and we are able to dig in musically or creatively there's just like an extra sparkle to it we don't mm. we don't have to work at it really hard you know that just there's something that kind of flows between us and I think we're both uh, not uh, it's not lost on us how special that is, you know, and we have occasionally both pulled in different directions and and either creatively or, or in our own lives. But we've one of us will go one way and then the other one will, will follow and then the other one will go one way. And we've just worked really hard to to stay in each other's sphere because uh, it's it's just it's really special. I think our mm our dynamic and now she's an amazing young mother and so this is the first time in the history of our career where we're not touring together she's on a little bit of a maternity leave and we have an amazing amazing woman that's learned all her parts that's a dear 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 friend of all of ours 
Uh, and, and Chloe's Chloe's stretching into this role of, of motherhood and uh, that's this whole other amazing blossoming chapter where I feel like I get I get to step into another role of our of our kind of growing family. So mm. we're smitten. We're pretty smitten with each other. <laughs> <laughs> the seed of activism in your music, it seems like um, some of it or all of it came from your dad mm. um, who said there's something more pressing and all-encompassing about the folks who speak to the bigger picture in terms of making music not just for music's sake but mm. for activist purposes and that in being important how naturally did you take to activism and how hard is it to keep your energy for it in your music great question <laughs> um i do think we started as activists both of us i, I think actually our whole band started as activists we we tour now as a five piece and and each member has their own anchor in our story and i think every one of us kind of came up in in our youth pretty committed to some bigger picture conversations around land-based activism and and human rights work and you know prison equity and food justice there was a lot there's a lot to feel as a, as somebody from this country, when you start understanding equity and and access and excess, even, and uh, I think everyone was paying attention and and not happy about the state of the world. And activism, I think, was first. I think when Chloe and I first started, you know, she was doing some work around land rights and and redwood forest kind of protection out on the West Coast. And I was in Latin America and I was doing a lot of learning and, and understanding of, of kind of the relationship between Latin America and the United States and indigenous rights and land-based rights, just kind of understanding all of those things. And, uh, and as we started performing, you know, like I was saying earlier in that part of the story, first it was just as this way to build relationship and way to show up not empty-handed but then it be, and then we were doing activism as a separate thing. Oh, then we'll go to the protest. We'll go to the front line. We'll, and then we started realizing, oh, well, m more people want to listen to song than they want to listen to speech, you know? And, and it started merging, I think, naturally. And we realized, actually, we have the possibility of having more impact in this crazy spinning world by by moving into music than we do moving into politics and it feels much more joyful of a choice and sometimes it's it's taken a lot of different positions sometimes the activism has felt really really obvious you know just like here's here is it something that we do not the, the song filthy dirty south for example we wrote when we were living in new orleans after the oil spill and it was just clear as day there is oil coming out it's oil coming out your mouth and you can't shut it down you can't close it out yes i love my filthy dirty south it was like there is an oil spill in the Gulf. We live here. We're Southern. It just comes and it's such an extracted region. And it just felt like a really obvious way to steer those lyrics, you know, like, please consider this beautiful breadbasket of a region that is known as the South of the United States. And look at what extractive resources are here from the, from the oil to the mountaintop removal, you know, to the prison industrial system, it just felt like it was a bludgeoned region, which I still think is the case. I think now uh, our relationship to issues has become more nuanced and has become more wide reaching. And I think that's because the issues themselves have gotten more obscure and I also think it's because our our lyricism has changed form and it feels like our relationship to activism and impact-based music almost has more now to do with calling people in and calling people towards each other because it feels like the issues at hand amongst many are division 
and this crazy, chaotic kind of disconnection that that has become the circumstance of American culture and social media and and post COVID, if we if we can say post COVID yet, you know the aftermath of of what's been going on for the last many years has created this fractioning of people and fractioning of identity. And so now I think our music and and the personality of its call to action is is almost more of a recollecting, calling the collective back in and, and trying to find spaces where we can actually all be on the same page because there's so many places where everybody is ready to be fighting. And, and so that's, that's changed form a lot. And I still think we're grappling with how we want to bring that into lyrics and, and how we want, how we want to dialogue about that. But I do think, you know, in those years of COVID, when, when our whole entire livelihood was completely taken away, we realized how much joy and impact and importance it felt to be able to be in a room together with a whole bunch of people making music and singing and dancing. And for a while, we had just gotten tired and near to burn it, burnt out like so many artists do with touring. And then, and then we weren't able to for, for a couple of years. And it felt like, oh, a whole part of our duty is actually just to gather people together. That's like a whole part of our job and our wow. responsibility, you know? From what I read about your band, purpose is very important to you. Can you talk about why that is and what the journey has looked like for you in terms of acknowledging and finding your purpose? <laughs> yeah, you know, quote my father, who's a very hearty 80 years old this year. And he said, you're never, don't worry, you're never going to get the answer. It's like a constant kind of ebb and flow. So I think that is the case with us. We we sort of find a, a piece of the story and a piece of our bigger kind of legacy, you know, and, and we go in that direction and then and then it gets blurry again for a little while and we're like, oh, which way are we going? And then we then we kind of steer a little bit more and uh, I think that's going to probably be a long haul conversation for all of us. I did start a project many years ago called the slow music movement. I just kind of coined it conceptually and then sent it out into the world to be a broader idea. And it's probably been coined by many people. Um, but I think that a big part of our purpose is to continue to understand how to make music that feels culturally relevant in a way that also feels like it's paying homage to the older ways that music has been in our lives as humans for the last 2000 years, you know, which predates the stage by 1,907 <laughs> years, however we want to get to that number. A very long time music has existed for us as part of our human identity before, before stage. And so we're really, really honored to be working musicians. And I think it's hopefully going to be our life forever. But finding all these ways to bring our music into the conversations and into the world in different in different ways uh, other than just your typical sort of tour life and and so sometimes that might mean that we're scoring music for for a theater piece or or maybe we've toured many times by sailboat it's one of the greatest joys of our ah. lives <laughs> you know it's like can't tell you what happens to the soul and the psyche when you go 6 miles an hour on the winds to get to your next gig you know um, but that's kind of a, I think will be a conversation forever. How can we keep learning about how to show up as musicians and, and not get cornered into any particular way of doing it, but keep, keep trying to, to show up well and, mm. and creatively really. So that gives us, um, basically beyond a lifetime's worth of inquiry. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, I do have a question about the slow music movement, but um, first, of your career, I read that Leah and Chloe have followed invitation and intuition to independently forge their own path in terms of your musical career. And also something I noticed, your bio is different than other music bios I've read and that there are no lists of awards mm -hmm. Um, or impressive achievements. There's more about where you came from and how you shaped your musicality, which I thought was an interesting observation. How do you approach those traditional industry milestones like awards and what value do you place on gaining industry status as a band? Great, great question. I've never noticed that about our bio. I don't know which bio you have either. Like Every time I look, there's like 12 floating around, but I kind of like that. On your website, just a... Okay, <laughs> like that should be On the, the old dot com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, great, it's a great question. I mean, when we get nods from the industry, it feels like a feather in our cap 100%. You know, it feels really nice to be taken seriously as musicians and as, as like working artists. But it's not our goal. It's not our, you know, it's not our North Star by any means. We... We are consistently doing things that, that feel intuitive. And like you said, it has felt very invitation based. We're not, we're not out there crunching to try and rise to the top of anything. It, it has felt really important to Chloe and, and my leadership to sort of listen to where people are asking us to show up and where we're invited and, and kind of follow that as opposed to trying to talk some festival or some promoter into bringing us to their event. Sometimes we would really like to get invited to these events, you know, and so perhaps they will happen or it, it, it does happen organically. We, we've played at Red Rocks multiple times. There's nothing like it on earth. It's just one of the most legendary spaces ever. Mm. Uh, to just be on that stage, you know, Telluride Bluegrass Festival we were invited to. And again, that was that was something that we had dreamed about for a very long time. And it, and it just felt profoundly inspiring to be standing on that stage. So there are definitely huge uh, marks in the music industry that feel really exciting to be part of and will continue to feel exciting to be part of. But it's not what drives us. And we have a very small handful of folks that work with us from within the, the sort of typical music industry. Um, and, they, and they all kind of know our style. We all sort of work together in this really interesting amorphous creature that is called Rising Appalachia and, and help steer it uh, accordingly. So... It's a balance, you know, it's a, it's been a balance forever, but, but we're driven by, by feeling like there is a reciprocal relationship and, and that is really different than being driven by success. And I think mm -hmm. it's kept us, um, very integral in our creative process, even if it means that things are much slower or, you know, much more fumbly than they might be mm -hmm. if we just took the blueprint. A little bit on the slow music movement, it came out of the desire to sustain the troubadour over participating in traditional touring, like the traditional touring musician industrial complex, if you want to <laughs> call it that. Um, you request local food in your rider. You will allow tabling for nonprofits. You create relationships with local community and alternative methods of transportation. You were mentioning sailboats. Mm -hmm. You're toured by trains, smaller vehicles that use non-fossil fuels. You've done these hub shows where you stay for a few days and create relationships within the community. So how did um, the slow music movement and how did that method of touring and relationship building impact your feeling of home? Oh, cool. Hmm. Uh, well... I do think home is tricky for the touring artist. Most of us all around the world probably struggle a little bit with a sense of home because you're you're kind of home amongst the people. I definitely think that we have 
deep familial relationship in in several parts of the world that feel like family and chosen chosen family and community uh, from years and years of being together and immersed in each other's world and, and livelihoods. And I think sometimes we can feel, you know, you can feel a little fractured perhaps in that space because there are many places that feel like home, but also that is a blessing. And, you know, I think at our very finest hour, we, we do, we do feel at home and in many places, you know, and in many bioregions and in many zones. So this is a kind of funny time to be talking about your festival um, because as of this interview that we are doing right now, it hasn't happened yet, but it <laughs> will have happened by the time this interview posts. Um, so let's get into it. Okay, this July you hosted Catalyst which seems like a huge undertaking, your first annual music, art, and education festival that takes place outside of Asheville, North Carolina. You curated two days of art, education, and music. In organizing this festival as people who have played many festivals, what was important to you in terms of making it a good experience for everyone, the vendors, the artists, the participants? Great. Yeah, you're right. We're like at the ninth hour right now. And by the time this goes live, it will have been finished. So fingers crossed, it's going to be a radical success. Uh, but it is also part of the slow music movement in a way, which is that we've wanted to curate and design a gathering where where a lot of the the creative minds and the thinkers and the musicians and the teachers and the activists, we can kind of curate that and bring people into this wider world that we've been able to experience for the last many years. And so it is it is a piece of, it's kind of one part uh, folk festival and one part kind of TEDx uh, think tank and one part skills gathering. And it's a, it's, it's a first year inaugural effort. So we didn't go too big, uh, mm -hmm. but it's it's been a, an astronomically large amount of work, <laughs> and mm -hmm. it bet. it feels really really exciting to be able to be in these conversations again around sustainability and perhaps bringing a lot of what the slow music movement was founded on, which was around sustainable touring, to this notion that perhaps that sustainability and, and culture and performance and music could actually become place-based. And I think the potential is really, really vast for what that could mean and how that could impact local community and how that could impact our ability to really dig our heels into uh, some of the bigger picture work that we love to stand behind with our music. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, what will your mom be doing at the festival? She will be babysitting her first grandson. <laughs> <laughs> and if we were lucky, we would pull her on stage. But she's really shy and doesn't love to be pulled on stage and is elated to be in charge of her first grandson. His name is Kaleo. He'll be five months old. And oh. our father will have a golf cart and he wants to help people park. That's the job he wants. That is such a dad job. Totally, right? He was like, give me a golf yeah. cart. I'll park the cars. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's talk about the new baby in the band, Chloe's son, Kaleo. Um, you mentioned to me over emails that there is a big tour coming up in November. So how do you anticipate tours being different now or will they be different because of Young Sir? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a learning process. Uh, the November tour, the Catalyst, the festival is the first show Chloe will be performing back at after maternity leave. And then our November tour is the first tour that she's going to be participating in. So it's probably going to be an emerging experience uh, to be on tour with a with a little one, but Kaleo, our our new family member, is a born and bona fide extrovert. So we think he's gonna like the party more than his mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
and uh, he just seems to really like to be in the limelight. So I think that it's it's going to be really cool to have a little one on the road, and and also because we were raised so much in music festival culture of a different nature, much smaller mm-hmm. and much more f- folkloric. But it feels very cool to now be third generation. Uh, you know, banjo player. So Leah, before I let you go, will you do the lightning round? Sure. All right. This is going to be off the dome questions. Uh, answers is what we're looking for. Uh, and it'll be, it'll be fun. Okay. Here we go. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs, but only really wolfy ones. Like, like, a. Like a fuzzy dog? No, what just kind of like I kind of just, I, I've always had these wonderful wolf mutts and they're very autonomous and they don't like jump on you or lick on you or chase tennis balls. They're a little bit more like stoic, kind of these stoic, wonderful, loyal creatures and they're my, <laughs> they're my ones. What is your karaoke song? Oh, I've only done karaoke once in my life and I was terrible, but I think it was like Grease Lightning or something. Nice. Oh, <laughs> wow. That would be great. To, to just do that on <laughs> just one time just do it on stage mm-hmm. everyone would love it <laughs> what is your coffee order i don't drink coffee i only drink mate the south american green tea yerba mate and oh, all right right now as you speak there is a deer in my yard wow uh, How my, big is this deer? There is like a mid-sized buck which means that my dog's gonna go crazy we might hear it but at least we know it's you know we know what's happening. Here. We know what's yes. happening. He's looking at us. What is a book that I should read? Ooh. Well, I would have to shout out a dear mentor of ours, an amazing author named Martin Shaw, who has produced many books. One of my favorite is called Scatterlings, and it's all about folkloric reclamation of place through art and mythology. He is a bona fide nutball genius and I love his work. Amazing. What is the first piece of music that you bought? Like what was the first album you bought with your own money? Gosh, I think it was probably like Outkast's early uh, Equimini albums that came out in the 90s and I would like wait at the CD store with my $8 or whatever and get them hot off the press between that and Ani DeFranco. Nice. Oh, that's a perfect combo. Right? Kind of just sort of announces what Rising Appalachia is right there. <laughs> right. What is your favorite method of transportation? Walking. Oh, all right. Not <laughs> sailboat? No, I love walking is my favorite. And when I was sailing, I was like, I need to walk. I need to take a walk. Oh, great. <laughs> you can't walk very far no. on the sailboat. This is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place in the world? Gosh. I'm quite partial to the area that we sailed, which was coastal British Columbia. You know, it was really life changing. I am moving to Maine at the end of this year, and I'm thinking that Rising Appalachia should do a sailboat tour on the coast of Maine. We did a sailboat tour on the coast of Maine, and we will do another. Oh, heck yeah. Where? Coastal Maine is amazing, and we toured on a three-masted triple schooner, schooner called the Victory Chimes off of the coast of Rockland, Rockport, Maine. And it was amazing. Go there. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. All right. I will catch the next one. <laughs> Leah, thank you so much for talking to me thank today. It's you. been a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check us out on the SiriusXM app by searching for Basic Folk, or check out our website, basicfolk.com. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode, send it to someone who might also enjoy that episode, like the guy who details your car and insists on shaking hands with you every time and also lets you know that there's probably going to be like a $65 upcharge at the end of this because your small hatchback is actually considered a midsize SUV. Maybe send it to that guy. He might like it. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Mm, Bye.